Roland Bainton is the eminent church historian of the 20th century, and he wrote what is probably the definitive biography of Martin Luther. And in it, he described Luther as, quote, a man climbing in the darkness a winding staircase in the steeple of an ancient cathedral. In the blackness, he reached out to steady himself, and his hand laid hold of a rope, and he was startled to hear the clanging of a bell, end quote. That bell in Bainton's imagery, which awakened the church out of its long slumber and ignited what became known as the Protestant Reformation, began to ring 500 years ago when Luther laid hold of the rope, or in this case, the hammer. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, thus setting in motion a chain of events that would lead to the recovery of the gospel and its restoration to the true church of Christ after centuries, a millennium of a suffocating darkness of Roman Catholicism. One of the mottos of the Reformation was post tenebras lux, which is Latin for after darkness, light. And that light which shone into the darkness of 16th century Europe and beyond was the light of the gospel. And Luther's 95 Theses was the event that struck the match. What was it about this event? What was it about this document that created such a stir? How, how did an obscure Augustinian monk from an obscure corner of Germany shake the very foundations of Christendom and forever alter the course of Western civilization? On this Reformation Day, marking the 500th anniversary of the event, I aim to explore that question by looking at three related issues. I want us to look at the background of the theses. Okay, what were the circumstances going on in Luther's life? and in the life of the Catholic Church, which precipitated Luther's writing and posting of the 95 Theses. Secondly, I want us to take a look at the content of the Theses. A lot of people have heard about Luther's 95 Theses, but they've never read Luther's 95 Theses. So the question is, what is contained in this document? What arguments does Luther make, and why are they so incendiary? I mean, how did they have this profound of an effect that 500 years later we're still talking about them and they're still relevant. Finally, I want us to look at the impact of the theses. How did the 95 theses ignite the Reformation and what is their enduring effect still today? Let's begin by looking at the background. The 95 Theses did not occur in a vacuum. Rather, they were the result of two separate events, one in the life of Luther himself and one in the life of the 16th century Catholic Church, but both of which collided on October 31st, 1517. So let's start with Luther. In last year's Reformation Day message, I highlighted the biography of Martin Luther culminating in his famous trial for heresy at the Diet of Worms in 1521, which culminated in Luther's 
legendary reply to the prosecutor's question as to whether or not he would recant these writings that he had been feverishly publishing over the last four years. Writings which had attacked, among other things, the authority of the church and of the pope. Luther was insisting, rather, that Scripture alone was the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And secondly, which had attacked the sacrament of penance and thereby the entire Roman Catholic system of salvation, by which justification of sinners is merited through a a mixture of faith and works mediated through the church. Instead, Luther insisted that a man is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. And there at this imperial meeting, this imperial deity, in the presence of the large crowd that included bishops and cardinals and the Holy Roman Emperor Charles himself, with his life hanging in the balance, Luther responded, Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, for I do not accept the authority of popes or councils, for they have contradicted each other often. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant of anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. I then examined last year four crisis points in Luther's life which led him up to this Gethsemane moment and gave him the courage to take his stand upon the gospel, even if it cost him his life. The first crisis point was the violent thunderstorm of July 1505, in which a bolt of lightning struck the ground near Luther and threw him from his horse. And Luther interpreted this, as any good Catholic in the 16th century would have, as a sign from God. It was a warning of impending judgment, and so Luther did the only thing that he knew would assure him of salvation. He declared that he would become a monk. The second crisis point came two years later in May of 1507, while Luther was performing his first mass after being ordained as a priest. He took his place there before the altar, and he began to recite the words of the Mass, and suddenly he was struck to his heart by a debilitating fear and terror of the holiness of God. Luther referred to this experience with a German word, anfiktum. It's a word that has no English equivalent, and it refers, according to Luther, to all of the doubt and turmoil and pang and tremor and panic and despair and desolation and desperation which can invade the spirit of man. This experience would become common in Luther's life over the next ten years. The events of that day ignited in Luther a firestorm of fear. The burning question that occupied his mind day and night was, how could a man stand in the presence of the holy God unless he himself were holy? What Luther was convinced that he needed more than anything was righteousness. And so he threw himself into the pursuit of righteousness at every cost with every ounce of energy that he could muster. He fasted for days on end without so much as a crumb. He prayed and meditated beyond what was required even by his strict 
Augustinian order. He refused blankets and nearly froze to death in the harsh German winters. But nothing, nothing could assuage his feeling of guilt and his knowledge that for all of his need, he lacked the righteousness which God required. That brings us to the third crisis point in 1510. Luther made a pilgrimage to Rome, hoping to find at last in the eternal city the answers that he needed and the righteousness that he lacked. It was due to its impressive collection of holy relics. No city on earth offered greater opportunity for the obtaining of salvation than Rome. But all Luther found there was more disillusionment. He found a Roman priesthood that was ignorant, irreverent, and utterly debauched. He found a system of indulgences absolutely devoid of any power to remit sin or to attain righteousness. When Luther visited the Scala Sancta, the holy steps, reportedly the very steps which once stood in front of Pilate's palace in Jerusalem where Christ had ascended for his trial, he climbed each step on his hands and his knees, kissing each step as he repeated the Paternoster, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. And upon reaching the top, all he could do was shrug and say, who knows if it is so. Luther came to Rome at last in a last-ditch effort of attaining the righteousness which God required, and he departed the city with absolutely no faith left in the system of merit that was prescribed by the church. If becoming a monk could not cleanse his soul, if all of his labors and all of his prayers and all of his vigils and all of his confessions could not rid his heart of guilt, if Rome with all of its relics offered no peace with God, what hope was there? And so Luther returned back to Germany in utter despair. When he returned from Rome, he was informed that he was being transferred from the monastery in Erfurt to another monastery in Wittenberg, where he was to become a professor in the city's newly formed university. But the change of venue did nothing to assuage the torment of his soul. Finally, not knowing what else to do, the superior at his monastery, a man named Johann von Staupitz, he determined the best course for Luther was to have him immerse himself in the Bible. Stop its thought. Let him wrestle with God in the pages of God's own book. I don't know what else to do with him. So he ordered Luther to study for his doctorate in theology and to begin preaching in the church and to teach Bible at the university. Luther offered him 12 reasons why this was a really bad idea. And von Stoppitz ignored him thinking that maybe in trying to apply the promises of God's grace to his parishioners, some of that grace might fall on himself. Amazingly, in all of his prior studies in preparation for the priesthood, the Bible had not been a staple of his theological education. I mean, Luther had hardly read it. But now for the first time, he was immersed in the Word of God and confronted, therefore, for the first time with the God of the Bible. Luther threw himself with fervor into this new work of learning and expounding the Scriptures. In August of 1513, he began his university lectures 
on the Psalms. In the fall of 1515, he began to lecture on Romans. 1516 and 17, he taught through Galatians. In the words of Bainton, his biographer, quote, these studies proved to be for Luther the Damascus Road. It began when Luther found in the opening words of Psalm 22 this statement, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now these words were spoken by Christ from the cross. So, thought Luther, Jesus had not died in this serene, impassable tranquility like the Jesus that I see up on the crucifix. No, Jesus in his death had felt himself utterly forsaken and rejected of God. Luther knew that feeling. He had a word for it. Onfictum. Jesus whom Luther knew only as the fearful judge who would damn sinners who didn't measure up on the last day, had entered into Luther's own feeling of despair and and forsakenness and alienation from God. Why, thought Luther, why did the Son of God suffer alienation from the Father? Luther knew why he was alienated from God. Luther knew why he felt so forsaken and separated from God. He was unrighteous, but Jesus was the righteous one. Why was he forsaken? The answer must be, Luther reasoned, that Christ had suffered for an unrighteousness not his own. Well, if he suffered for an unrighteousness not his own, whose unrighteousness was he bearing? It must be Luther's. Christ took the sin of man upon himself and suffered the wrath of God in our place. What's more, the Father had sent the Son to the cross. It was the love of God that had crucified the Son of God in order to satisfy the wrath of God on behalf of the children of God. The cross completely altered Luther's conception of God, both father and son. And it was in the midst of these soul-shattering discoveries that everything converged one night there in the tower of the monastery in Wittenberg. Luther was laboring sometime around 1515. He was laboring through the text of Romans 1.17, which says, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The last fortress to fall in Luther's mind was the problem of the righteousness or justice of God. How did the gospel reveal God's justice? How did it reveal His righteousness? How could God justify the ungodly, the unrighteous, and yet remain righteous himself? Luther knew that God could not, indeed would not, act in unrighteousness. God would cease to be God. The whole created universe would dissolve in an instant. And yet, the gospel here in black and white was declaring that God justifies unrighteous people. He justifies the ungodly. But Luther had studied the law, and he knew that just judges 
Tell it like it is. They call unrighteous people unrighteous. They don't call unrighteous people righteous. How could these things be? Luther says, I wrestled with Paul. I beat my head against the text day and night. How does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? And then suddenly one night it happened. The darkness of his soul blazed with divine light and he saw it. In Luther's own words, quote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage for Paul became to me a gate to heaven. See, Luther finally understood the gospel. Luther had hated God because God required of him what he could not produce. But now he found that in the gospel, the righteousness that God requires, God gives through grace and sheer mercy received by faith alone. It is not our own righteousness by which we are saved. It is, as Luther said, a righteousness extra nos, outside of us. And this accords with God's righteousness because of the cross of Christ. See, God's justice, His righteousness, requires the penalty of death and infinite wrath upon the sins of men. And yet the gospel declares that that penalty Christ paid in full at the cross, where He suffered that infinite wrath of God and absorbed it in His own body in our place. God's righteousness requires perfect obedience from those who would merit eternal life. And yet the gospel declares that that perfect obedience Christ achieved in his perfect life and in his obedient death. And that his perfect righteousness is then given, it is imputed to sinners by faith. Therefore the the gospel is indeed the revelation of the righteousness of God. Because the righteousness which God requires, God gives to sinners through the cross of Christ. And this gift of righteousness, this justification, it is received not by confession, that hadn't worked, 
Not by works of penance, that hadn't worked. Not through the purchasing of indulgences, that hadn't worked. Not by works of any kind, but by faith and faith alone. A sinner is justified, counted righteous before God, not by the attainment of righteousness through their own works, but by the imputation of righteousness through faith in the works of Christ. And with that, ten years of torment and terror and anguish came to an end. And Luther found what he had been looking for, and he was finally at peace with God. He had walked through open doors into paradise. Well, at the same time that Luther was discovering the gospel, he was finding life and righteousness and peace in Christ, a crisis was brewing many miles away in Rome. Pope Leo X, whom Bainton describes as, quote, elegant and indolent as a Persian cat, there he is up there, He needed funds to finish the construction of the ostentatious new Basilica of St. Peter, which was the purported resting place of both the apostles Peter and Paul. The problem was he had squandered all of the church's money on various wars and the funding of his own decadent lifestyle. Conveniently, however, the Roman Catholic Church has a doctrine known as the treasury of merit. Now, While the vast majority of mankind lacks the righteousness that God requires to enter into heaven, there are a few superstars of the faith, the saints, who accumulated so much merit in their life that they actually had more than they needed. And the excess merit, what the Catholic Church calls works of supererogation, is deposited into a heavenly treasury to which the church and primarily the pope holds the key. Jesus Christ himself had filled this treasury with an infinite store of righteousness that could be dispensed at the church's, namely the Pope's, discretion. Now, ask yourself this question. If you're the Pope and you hold the keys to the treasury of merit by which lackluster Christians can get into heaven and you need the funds to build St. Peter's Basilica, what do you do? Well, you sell salvation to those with sufficient funds to pay. This transfer of merit out of this fictitious heavenly treasury and into a sinner's account for the purchase of a price is called an indulgence. And so Pope Leo X offered a plenary indulgence in order to defray the cost of building St. Peter's. And he granted the right to administrate this indulgence in Germany to a man named Albert of Brandenburg. Now, unbeknownst to the rest of Germany, Albert and Leo had entered into a backroom agreement. Albert had agreed to pay the Pope 10,000 gold coins in order to become the Archbishop of Mainz. That's how one got uh, high positions in that day. You paid for them. Becoming the Archbishop of Mainz would make him the highest-ranking bishop in all of Germany, and he would control the vast church properties and therefore the vast church treasuries throughout the realm of Germany. It was quite an investment. Well, Leo allowed Albert to offer this plenary indulgence within Germany 
if half of the fee would go to reimbursing Albert for his 10,000 gold coins, and the other half would be sent to the Vatican for the rebuilding of St. Peter's. So in order to sell these indulgences, Albert employed vendors, salesmen, who, as you will see, are selling salvation like a used car. Those purchasing an indulgence for themselves would receive plenary and perfect remission of all sins. They would be restored into a state of innocence that they had enjoyed at their baptism, and they would thereby, if they kept their slate clean, be spared all of the pains of purgatory. In addition, one could purchase an indulgence on behalf of a loved one already departed and in purgatory, and thus immediately secure their release and their pardon and ensure their entrance into heaven. I mean, you could cut your father's or your mother's or your grandfather's time in purgatory by millions of years. If purchasing an indulgence for oneself, and the Pope wasn't a completely godless heathen, he said, well, of course you need to be contrite and you need to make confession. But if you were purchasing the salvation and the freedom from purgatory for a, a dead loved one, you didn't need to be a contrite or confess anything. You just had to have the right coinage. There was a sliding scale depending upon one's means that determined the price of salvation. Kings and queens, princes, archbishops and bishops were expected to pay 25 gold coins. Abbots, cathedral prelates, counts, barons, and other nobles and their wives were required to pay 20 Lower nobility owed six, merchants owed three, all others one, and the poor were allowed, very graciously, to contribute what they could. Um, if nothing else, just their prayers and their fastings. Well, the chief vendor in Germany was a Dominican priest by the name of Johann Tetzel. His anglicized name became John, John Tetzel. And John Tetzel had a particular talent for procuring people's money. He got results everywhere that he went. As he approached a town, he expected the village dignitaries to come out and meet him, and together they would make a solemn procession into the town square, preceded by the cross bearing the, the papal arms, and the Pope's proclamation of indulgence would be held aloft on a, on a gold-embroidered velvet cushion. It was quite the show, and it captured everyone's attention. When they gathered into the center of town and the cross was stationed there prominently, Tetzel would begin his sermon. And it would go like this. Listen now. God and St. Peter, they call you. Consider the salvation of your souls and the souls of your loved ones departed. You priest, you noble, you merchant, you virgin, you matron, you youth, you old man, enter now into the church, which is the church of St. Peter. Visit this most holy cross erected before you and ever imploring you. Have you considered that you are lashed in a furious tempest amid the temptations and dangers of the world and that you do not know whether you can reach the haven, not of your mortal body, but of your immortal soul? Consider that all who are contrite and have confessed and have made the contribution will receive complete remission of all their sins. Listen. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives, pleading with you, beseeching you, saying, have pity on us, 
Have pity on us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son and the mother to her daughter, we bore you, we nourished you, we brought you up, we left you our fortunes, and you are so cruel and hard that now you are not willing for so little to set us free. Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember that you are able to release them. For as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, that soul from purgatory springs. Will you not then for a a quarter of a florin receive these letters of indulgence through which you are able to lead a divine and immortal soul into the fatherland of paradise? I've heard some revivalists in my day that preach not too differently from that. Now, although Tetzel never came to Wittenberg, he came close enough to Luther's parish to entice the parishioners from Luther's church to make the journey in order to purchase their salvation. And when they returned to Wittenberg, holding the proof of their pardon in their hands, Luther was absolutely incensed. Armed with his newfound understanding of the gospel of justification by the free grace of God alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone, Luther could no longer abide this error. Luther's anger was driven by two points. On the one hand, Luther viewed this as another example of the greed of Rome fleecing his sheep. See, Luther had been to Rome and he knew exactly why the Vatican was out of money. And he did not appreciate them trying to refill their coffers on the back of his own impoverished people. And secondly, and far more importantly to Luther, he knew now that salvation did not come through the purchasing of a piece of paper. His people were returning to his church holding certificates of pardon, yet they were no more forgiven than when they were left. They were just poorer. Yet they came home convinced that they were innocent before God. To Luther's view, the church was damning the very people she was commissioned to save. And so, on October 31st, 1517, on the eve of All Saints Day, Luther furiously wrote out 95 propositions against the sale of indulgences and posted them, in accordance with current practice, on the door of the castle church. And with that, the Reformation was born. Now, Luther did not intend to spark a revolution, not at the first, Uh, He held no significant rank among the Catholic authorities. He was merely a parish priest and a professor of theology at a small and insignificant out-of-the-way university. By posting these theses on the door of the church, Luther was inviting debate and response from his fellow scholars and priests. But these theses had not been posted for very long before a handful of his students came and copied them down translated them from Latin into German, put them in the hand of a publisher who owned a newfound invention that would change the world, the printing press, and Luther's theses were mass-produced in the people's own language and disseminated throughout Germany and beyond. Luther did, however, send a copy to the infamous Albert, now the Archbishop of Mainz, his superior, 
And with it, he attached a letter that began like this. Father in Christ and most illustrious prince, forgive me that I, the scum of the earth, should dare to approach your sublimity. The Lord Jesus is my witness that I am well aware of my insignificance and my unworthiness. I make so bold because of the office of fidelity which I owe to your paternity. May your highness look upon this speck of dust and hear my plea for clemency from you and from the Pope. There's not a little bit of sarcasm in those words. And with that, he began to spew fire. God on high, is this the way the souls entrusted to your care are prepared for death? It is high time you looked into this matter. I can be silent no longer. Christ did not command the preaching of indulgences, but of the gospel. And what a horror it is and what a peril to a bishop if he never gives the gospel to his people except along with the racket of indulgences. He then implored Albert to consider his theses and to end the sale of indulgences in Germany. Instead, Albert forwarded the theses on to Pope Leo along with this little commentary. Quote, Luther is just a drunken German. He will feel different when he is sober. Now, The first part may have been true, but the second part was not. It proved totally false. So what was contained in these 95 theses, and why did they change the world? Well, first it should be said, and you'll notice this as we go through some of them, the 95 theses do not represent Luther's mature theology. It had only been a couple of years since his evangelical conversion, and he was still a thoroughgoing Catholic at this point. All of that would change over the next four years as his theology and his ecclesiology were worked out and refined in the fires of debate. Nevertheless, the seeds of his mature Protestant theology are there. And even the mere seeds of Luther's mature Protestant theology were enough to crack the foundations of the Catholic Church and ignite the fires of the Reformation. The 95 Theses contain five general points of dispute. Every one of them, on their own, are revolutionary enough to have struck a major blow to Catholicism. So let's walk through these very quickly, and I'm going to give you a taste of the flavor of the 95 Theses. Luther's Theses begin with the nature of forgiveness and true repentance. According to Luther... Forgiveness of sins does not come through the sacrament of penance, confession, and absolution. Remember, Luther had tried that. It was a dead-end street. Rather, forgiveness comes through real evangelical repentance from the heart. Thesis 1. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying repent, he meant the whole life of the faithful to be an act of repentance. Thesis 2. This saying cannot be understood of the sacrament of penance, which is administered by the priesthood. Thesis 3. Yet he does not mean interior repentance only. Nay, interior repentance is void if it does not externally produce different kinds of mortifications of the flesh. Finish this statement. Faith without works is... Same thing he's saying. Number 4. And so penance remains while self-hate remains, namely, right up to the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. If you're not repentant from the heart, and if your repentance does not persevere, you are not forgiven. So here, Luther is disputing the Catholic Bible's translation of the word repentance. For a thousand years, it had been translated, do penance. Penance. 
Rather, Luther said repentance refers to the change of heart that leads inevitably to a transformed life. Furthermore, repentance is offered unto God and forgiveness of sins is granted from God, not through the priesthood, and a person must continue in their repentance all the way up to the gate of the kingdom of heaven. In short, Forgiveness of sins comes only through true evangelical repentance, not acts of penance, not the purchase of indulgences. So these first four theses strike at the heart of the Roman Catholic system of sacramental forgiveness, and they offer a radically different view of salvation. They alone would have been enough to spark the Reformation. But he goes on. There's a distinct undercurrent throughout the theses of at least questioning, if not outright denying, the authority of the Pope to act outside the bounds of Scripture. Now this is important because to the Catholic Church in the 16th century and still today, the objection that indulgences can't be found anywhere in Scripture doesn't hold any weight. It doesn't have to be found in Scripture so long as the Pope declares it to be so. The Pope, as the head of the church and the heir of the seat of St. Peter, has authority to speak for Christ, and his proclamations bear as much weight and functionally more weight than the Scriptures themselves do. Well, this Luther flatly denies. The Pope has neither, Thesis 5, the Pope has neither the wish nor the power to remit any penalties save those which he has imposed at his own will or according to the will of the canons. Thesis 6. The Pope has no power to remit guilt save by declaring and confirming that it has been remitted by God or to be sure by remitting the cases reserved to himself. If he neglected to observe these limitations, the guilt would remain. Thesis 25, the same power over purgatory which the Pope has in general is possessed by every bishop and curate in his particular diocese and parish. And Thesis 26, the Pope does well in giving remission to souls, not by the power of the keys. He has no such power, but through intercession. Now, although a definite affirmation would not come until a later date, you can see already in these the undercurrent of sola scriptura. Luther is beginning to affirm that Scripture alone is the authority in all matters of faith and practice, not the affirmations and proclamations of an apostate pope. Third, the inefficacy of indulgences. Luther flatly denies that the papal indulgences being sold throughout Germany purchased salvation and were of any value whatsoever. Now this follows logically from the first and second points. Think about it. If remission of sins comes only through true repentance, and if the Pope lacks the authority to remit sins through the creation of indulgence, then it follows logically that indulgences aren't worth the paper they're printed on. And that's pretty much exactly what Luther says. Thesis 27 Those who assert that a soul straightway flies out of purgatory as a coin tinkles in the collection box are preaching an invention of man. Thesis 28. It is sure that when a coin does tinkle, greed and avarice are increased, but the intercession of the church is in the will of God alone. Thesis 32. Speaking to his own church members. Those who think themselves sure of salvation through their letters of pardon will be damned forever along with their teachers. Thesis 35, 
Those who teach that contrition is not needed to procure redemption or indulgence are preaching doctrines inconsistent with Christianity. 36, every Christian who is truly contrite has plenary remission of both penance and of guilt as his due, even without a letter of pardon. 37, any true Christian, living or dead, partakes of all the benefits of Christ and the church, which is the gift of God, even without a letter of pardon. 52, confidence in salvation through letters of indulgence is vain, that even if the Pope himself should pledge his soul as a guarantee. 67, indulgences according to the declarations of those who preach them are the greatest graces. By greatest, it is to be understood that they're the greatest producers of revenue. 68, they are in fact of little account as compared with the grace of God and the piety of the cross. Fourth, Luther inveighed against the church for stealing from his people in exchange for a false promise of salvation. In the theses, Luther accuses Rome and the Pope himself of greed and avarice. He says, God, on the other hand, desires charity and mercy more than money. 42, Christians must be taught that it is not the intention of the Pope that the buying of pardons is to be regarded as comparable with works of mercy. 43, Christians are to be taught that to give to the poor or to lend to the needy is a better work than the purchase of pardons. 45. Christians are to be taught that a man who sees his brother in need and passes him by in order to give his money for the purchase of pardons wins for himself not the indulgences of the Pope but the indignation of God. 46. Christians are to be taught that unless they have an abundant surplus of means, they are bound to keep back what is needful for their own households and in no wise to squander their substance on the purchase of pardons. 48. Christians are to be taught that in dispensing pardons, the Pope has more desire, as he has more need, for devout prayer on his behalf than of ready money. In other words, you do better for the Pope to pray for him than to give him more money. 50. Christians must be taught that if the Pope knew the exaction of the preachers of indulgences, he would rather have St. Peter's Basilica reduced to ashes than built upon the skin, flesh, and bones of his sheep. 51. Christians are to be taught that the Pope, as is his duty, would desire to give of his own substance to those poor men, many of whom certain sellers of pardons are extracting money from. That is, that to this end he would even, if need be, sell the Basilica of St. Peter. You can note that Luther was fond of sarcasm. It's one of his favorite ways of communicating, which did not sit very well with those he debated against. 81. This wanton preaching of pardons makes it hard for even the learned men to defend the honor of the Pope against calumny, which is slander, or at least against the shrewd questions of the laity. Here's what he's saying. My people are coming and asking me questions that I can't answer. Like, 82. Why does not the Pope empty purgatory on account of most holy charity and the great need of souls, the most righteous of causes, seeing that he redeems an infinite number of souls on account of sordid money for the erection of a basilica, which is a most trivial cause? You know, he says, people are coming to me in my church, and they're saying, if the Pope has the key to the treasury of merit, why does he not fling it open and spread the grace abroad? Why does he sell it? Luther says, it's a good question. 86. 
The Pope's riches at this day far exceed the wealth of the richest millionaires. Can he not therefore build one single basilica of St. Peter out of his own money than rather out of the money of the faithful poor? Finally, Luther's fundamental concern in writing these theses, namely the false promise of salvation through the purchase of an indulgence, comes through in the last four, 92. And so, let all those prophets depart who say to Christ's people, peace, peace, when there is no peace. 93. And farewell to all those prophets who say to Christ's people, the cross, the cross, yet there is no cross. 94. Christians are to be exhorted to endeavor to follow Christ their head through pains, deaths, and hells. 95. And so let them trust to enter heaven rather through many tribulations than through the false confidence of peace. Luther knew that these indulgences were just a piece of paper. He knew by experience that peace with God is not found through a donation to the church's coffers, but through that justification which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so he absolutely hated the fact that his people had been sold a false peace through a false gospel. The grace which they had purchased was cheap. And Luther was convinced that cheap grace is no grace at all. These 95 theses exploded upon 16th century Europe with the force of a nuclear bomb. You cannot overstate the impact that they had. Why? Well, several factors contributed to the immense and immediate impact of the 95 theses. Politically, the rise of nationalism and created conditions in Europe that were ripe for the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire and with it the political power of the Catholic Church. Economically, the end of feudalism and an emerging middle class created conditions that were ripe for the so-called Protestant work ethic that Luther worked out so beautifully, in which he denied that one needed to be a priest or a monk or a nun in order to please God, but rather that any man by his work, could bring God glory. Luther was at pains to establish that the farmer who plows his field in faith, the blacksmith who forges iron in faith, the mother who raises her child in faith, brings God just as much glory as the preacher who preaches his sermon in faith. Technologically, the invention of the printing press with movable type enabled the mass publication and dissemination of the writings of the Reformation, not to mention the scriptures in the vernacular language which Luther translated. Culturally, the Enlightenment brought about conditions that valued free thought and the study of the classics, including the scriptures in their original Greek and Hebrew, which enabled them to get a better translation than the translation that the church had been using for a thousand years. But, above all of those other factors... Listen to me, I'm almost finished. Above all of those other factors, there is one that rises to the top. Spiritually, Luther had found the answer to the most pressing question in human experience. How can a sinful man be justified in the sight of a holy God? 
In the gospel, Luther found the solution to the guilt that plagues the human conscience. He found that guilt is not remitted, sin is not forgiven, the conscience is not cleansed, and man is not justified through the purchase of an indulgence or works of penance of any kind, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that, more than any other reason, is why Luther and his 95 theses exploded onto the scene of history and forever changed the world. Luther brought the gospel of justification, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. He brought the gospel out of its Babylonian captivity in the Catholic Church and he restored it to the people of God. He restored it to the true church of Christ. That's why the 95 Theses mattered 500 years ago and that's why they matter still today. Your greatest problem is God's righteous wrath against your sin. And your only hope is God's righteous mercy offered through the death and resurrection of His righteous Son. The righteousness that God requires from every one of us, with no exceptions, you must be perfect if you would enter into heaven. That righteousness that God requires, God gives by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works of the law or works of penance. Now the question is, do you have that righteousness? Have you felt yourself utterly reborn? And have you walked through the open gate of the gospel into paradise? I hope you have. If not, why not? The gospel door has been flung wide open for you. Why not enter through? Why not embrace God's free gift of mercy today, right now? Why not wrap yourself in Christ's righteousness which he offers freely by his grace? We're going to conclude this service with a song. And I'm going to ask the praise band if they'll come up even now. As it was 500 years ago, so it remains today. There are only two paths which men tread in their attempt to attain salvation. The way of faith and the way of works. Only one ends in life. As it is written, the righteous shall live by Faith, which path are you on?